you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. What is the long-term effect of too much information? Information, information, I just need some information. I've been dying, I've been dying, is it lack of education? I've been reading, I've been reading without any transformation. I'm addicted, I'm addicted, is it overstimulation? Hey. Welcome to the Success Report. The Success Report. Hear ye, hear ye, come one, come all. You are listening to the Sixth Sense Report with Joel Nikoloff and Darnell Samuels. Bro, we're gonna we're gonna try to continue the conversation uh, we had with with Dr. Julie Panessi. Uh, just the, like we promised. Yeah, just like we <laughs> promised. Uh, just for the audience, if if this is uh, the you know first time that that they're hearing us talk to her, uh, go back check out episode one thirty three, uh, as well as one thirty four, where we did a, a quick debrief of that initial conversation. So, hopefully. You know, we can jump right back into it and uh, and see where see where the conversation takes us. Yes, yes. Okay, so um, the last episode we did, uh, what was that? One thirty four, Joel. One thirty three. Um, debrief. The, oh, debrief. the debrief was one thirty four. Yeah. One thirty four. Okay, yeah. So one thirty four in the debrief. Um, after I listened to the episode, um, after we recorded it, uh, two things popped up. Uh, in the start, you said, "When do we know when we are succeeding morally?" And then at the end of the episode, you mentioned morality does not require perfection. And what I said was that the way we know we are succeeding morally is if we have a standard of what morality is, uh, which is perfection, which is God. So morality does. Re- so I would I was saying that morality does require perfection, so that we know when we are actually hitting the mark. And mm-hmm. actually, that's why Christians use the term transgression, mm-hmm. missing the mark. Yeah, but we just want you to um, just expound um, a little bit on, on that, on my comments there. I think this is a really interesting question. And the point you make about, um, you know, how do we know when we're succeeding morally? Well, well, it's not possible to know if you don't have a standard in mind, because it's sort of like, uh, you know, aiming with your bow and arrow and not knowing where the bullseye is, right? Mm. You, you need to know what target you're trying to aim at if you're ever going to have a chance of, of hitting it. Um, on the On the topic of whether or not morality requires perfection. Uh, I don't necessarily disagree with you, but it depends on who we're thinking needs to be perfect or who we're thinking can be perfect. Uh, you know, in the, in the Christian context, because human beings are, are imperfect by nature, because we're flawed by nature, uh, it's it's an unreasonable view. It's an unreasonable goal, right? In my mind, for us to think that it's possible to be perfect moral beings, you know, that we will that we will never falter, that we will always embody, uh, you know, the virtues of, of honesty and integrity and courage and justice perfectly. Um, so that that's what I had in mind, you know, when I said that morality doesn't require perfection. It, it, I'm, I'm speaking about, you know, what's hypothetically possible for human beings, but that's a different thing entirely from whether or not there is an objective moral standard in the world. Um, I think there is. I think you guys think there is, right? And mm-hmm. and because God is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, and in other words, perfect uh, being, um, he can provide that uh, objective standard, which we can count as perfection. But as human beings, you know, so now we've got the the bullseye, and we can get our little bow and arrow out, and we can try our very best to hit that objective, mm-hmm. <laughs> perfect uh, bullseye. Mm-hmm. Um, but we will all inevitably in our lives fail in one way or another. And it's just a question of how much we will fail, how, how, how far off that mark uh, we will get, how often. And then I think ultimately how hard we will try to, to hit it again, you know, and that, and that involves a lot of things. That involves a stance of humility because it involves being aware that not everything we do is right just in virtue of us doing it or thinking that it's right, but realizing that there's something bigger outside of ourselves and then always trying to uh, look at our actions and our decisions and trying to evaluate them in light of this this objective standard and, and you know so I think that requires a kind of humility and being willing to go back to the drawing board and be willing to revise you know so you try something out uh, with a friend saying hey, that's not helping my relationship very much so let me try something a little bit different and see if I can be more trustworthy or more generous or more uh, giving you know something like that um, 
So I think, yeah, I think that thinking that that it's possible for human beings to be morally perfect is an impossible goal, but a worthwhile one in some sense. You know, I, I might mm-hmm. be contradicting myself there, but um, just because, you know, I think we can at, at, at once realize it's impossible to be morally perfect, but still try to the best of our ability to develop our character and to aim at becoming virtuous as much as possible for our whole lives. Mm, How yeah. did I do there? Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, no. It's it, it was just a, a different, just a more nuanced from what I was saying. Uh, and I guess well, and, and part of it too is the context that you're teaching in. Um, most of your students aren't coming from, or I should say it this way: for those people who grow, who are people of the book, who grow mm-hmm. up in in Christian culture. Mm-hmm. It is part of Christian culture to discuss, debate ethics from the time you're a mm-hmm. child. Like that's mm-hmm. just, it's ingrained in the culture because of the book. Mm-hmm. But then you have people who, are, who don't come from um, a Christian background and, you know, the conversation about ethics is not nuanced. Mm-hmm. And so now they come to you, the professional right <laughs> the, the professional on ethics and now and now you're having these deep conversations at age 18 19 20 right and so i guess like for you like what are some of the gaps that you see as a professor you know teaching ethics to kids um who don't come from a christian background oh my goodness well you know i mean just the challenge of teaching ethics at all in some sense there's something a bit uh disingenuous or ironic or even impossible about it you know because i think you know, teaching some that there is an impression we give now, or or an impression that somehow floats in society that when you are a teacher of something, you are an ultimate authority on that thing, and and my view is 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 sort of the opposite, or or, or turns that on its head a little bit, which is that mm-hmm. if you are if you are a professor, really what it all it means, or what it ultimately means, is that you've decided to spend many of the waking hours of your life being a student of these questions, right? Mm. And so it doesn't mean that your answers are any more perfect than anyone else's, but it probably means that in virtue of having thought about them quite a bit and researched what other people have had to say about them and tried to work some things out, maybe there's a sense in which you are more skilled than others in the context of ethics at sort of uh, understanding all of the the issues at play or or understanding why some answers are less good than other ones, you know, something like that. But I really think this is such a, a good question you pose and such an important one now, because I think one of our big problems, maybe the biggest problem that's a stifling debate right now is the idea that we have experts. And the mm. word expert carries with it this idea of perfection. So when when we say something like, well, Dr. Tam says, whatever, the vaccinated can't transmit the virus. Uh, she's an expert. Experts are have perfect knowledge. Therefore, they can't be questioned. And in some sense, all of that follows, right? So if you start from the idea that someone is an expert and that means that their knowledge is perfect and infallible and can't be questioned, then I guess in some sense, whatever they say, it's not, it's either not worth questioning or thinking about yourself. Uh, It's sort of a fool's errand as we say, right? So I think we really need to, we need to humble ourselves a little bit Mm -hmm. here and realize that um, at most what humans are capable of in the sphere of expertise is being a little more well-versed than others, right? In virtue of having maybe devoted their life to to studying in these areas. But um, expertise does not mean perfect infallible knowledge that is beyond question that is beyond reproach because as soon as we get on that train we have no public discourse or public dialogue and i think we have no democracy anymore and that's exactly what we're seeing Mm -hmm. yeah i it's it's funny you say that because i think uh i've been using the word uh huber hubris um, to describe hubris, yeah, hubris, kind of yes. arrogance, or, yeah, yeah, to describe our political class, or you know, yeah. from the beginning of this, right? There's just this abundance um, of of that perspective, and you know, the other piece that sort of ties somewhat in there is this, you know, the logical fallacy of appeal to authority, mm-hmm. um, and and I just it, it's 
it's weird with respect to the the subject matter expert concept, right? We we just go, well, they're they're the authority. I don't want to do any thinking, so I'm just gonna trust that they're perfect, which is sort of funny in in regards to what we were talking about previously about perfect standards, but none of us mm-hmm. actually being able to achieve it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I just find, I wonder your thoughts, you know, maybe a little bit more on the the philosophical side of you know navigating uh, whether it be subject matter experts or politicians that you know, there's a lack of a, a good philosophical perspective of what is the role of these, you know, uh, let's call them elites, um, and and what is the, the relationship to be with the populace? Yeah, so I think there's a lot to unpack there. Before I get into that, sort of the broader philosophical issues, um, I think, you know, did you see what happened to Kristen Wong Tam? this last week. Uh, I, I don't know if, if you will have noticed this. So Kristen Wong Tam was on the Toronto Board of Health. She was the, I, I can't remember if she was the chair or the, the vice chair, but she published an opinion piece in the National Post or Toronto Star, I forget, within the last week, mm-hmm. in which she suggested that we need to stop you know, hating and dismissing the unvaccinated and we need to stop being divisive. She was very clear that she mm-hmm. was vaccinated. She feels that vaccination is important, but that her parents are not and that they have different views and that we really just need to come together and be unified and stop, you know, sort of stop uh, developing all these vices towards towards each other. Well, I saw that article and I thought, well, good for her. Thank goodness. Finally, someone is opening regard, you know, this, what's not important here is what her particular view on vaccination is. I thought it was a very mature position where she came forward and said, uh, we need to be able to function together democratically. And, you know, vaccination is a, um, you know, it's an immunological issue and we need to stop letting it seep into uh, who we are as people and how we treat others, right? Well, what happened to her, she received such a horrific public backlash mm-hmm. and basically whipping from her colleagues that she retracted her position. She apologized. No way. She po- yeah, she posted, uh, I can't remember if it's on the Toronto Board of Health website. There's an official apology and retraction from her, and she has agreed not to uh, continue her position anymore. What? So this and, is how we treat people. Who, well, and the CP24 headline is Wong Tam apologizes for sharing misleading vaccine information in column. Yeah, so you know what she said? She quoted uh, Kieran Moore, who said a while ago that um, we need to look more closely at natural immunity. Wow. So, and and what's, you know, so it's not even her who's saying that. She's referencing uh, the top doctor in Ontario, supposedly, right, for having said this. <laughs> um, and she, I think she also made a remark in that article about how we are seeing transmission among the vaccinated, which, my goodness, you have to have your head in the sand not to. I mean, uh, Fauci and Gates and the head of the CDC and, and, and you know, the chief officer, uh, medical officer in the UK, they have all said that the vaccine do not prevent transmission. So, I mean, either Canadians are just, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, <laughs> just plain old ignorant, uh, or there's an attempt to sort of, you know, uh, strong arm her and silence her. Uh, mm-hmm. It's really, really atrocious. Where was I going with all of this? I mean, you, you, you get so caught up in how horrific. So this is what we do. You know, we take someone who is trying to advocate for Things we prior to 2020 would have considered to be deep civic virtues, you know, Mm -hmm. tolerance of others, discourse in society, opening up debate, things like that. And now we uh, we villainize her. We I mean, I've had the same thing done to me. You know, I know what this is like. I mean, she's so now we we not only say she's unintelligent and misinformed, but that she's culpable of insidiously misinforming, you know, other people that she's tasked with with protecting. I mean, it's just it's just it's just horrific. But that wasn't your question. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and, and I mean, I think. You know, it's a good pretext to my question, which was about, you know, the the idea like we've we've ignored this logical fallacy of appeal to authority. Yeah. We've yeah. we have no sort of philosophical 
perspective as a society of what is the role of these elites or or political leaders slash i mean now we've we've elevated you know unelected bureaucrats to sort of this same level of elite uh status um and so yeah i was just wondering from a philosophical perspective if you can speak to maybe what it, what we how we used to look at these you know how the over yeah. time we've developed a perspective towards these people uh Argu- arguments you mentioned that you know arguments from authority are typically thought to be uh, fallacies, which they are, but uh, it's a complicated situation, mm-hmm, right? Because mm-hmm. when we say that appeal to authority is a fallacy, we mean that you should not only appeal to authority in reaching your conclusions, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you should not simply defer to the authority of, of, of someone else. And that's what we're seeing happening now, right? So I think the you know, the treatment of, of Wong Tan, what that is supposed to say to the public is that you should do no thinking yourself, you have no right to depart from the party line, and you should defer all of your thinking to what expert? I'm not sure, because I mean, she quoted Kieran Moore and got in trouble for that. So I guess it's not him. Was she supposed to quote, you know, the chief medical officer of Canada and not not Ontario? Was she supposed to quote Tam? Was she supposed to, you know, I mean, I'm not sure uh, what the ultimate authority. It's almost like the ultimate authority now is some kind of party line that is bigger than any particular individual. It's mm. almost like there's just this implicit assumption that there's a narrative that's free floating in society that is ultimately uh, governing, that is the ultimate authority. And that allows it to be the case that, you know, when Fauci says, oh, the vaccines aren't working quite as well as we thought they were, or the director of the CDC says they can't stop transmission, or Kiri Moore says we need to look more closely at natural immunity, um, none of that matters because it you know, this ultimate authority doesn't rest with any one particular individual. It rests somehow with a sum that is larger than parts, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this question about what, you know, what authority is it we're supposed to trust? I have no idea. It seems to be a moving, a moving target, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So just to kind of deepen the, uh, you know, the discussion of, of this idea that an argument from authority is a fallacy. Well, appealing to authority is not always bad, right? I mean, if you think about uh, how the uh, uh, doctor-patient relationship is supposed to work. Well, and we often call that a fiduciary relationship. It's a relationship of trust between two people. And the reason why trust is so important there is because when you go to your doctor, you do so because you have some problem you can't fix yourself, right? You, 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 need, uh, you need some information you can't get for yourself. You need some treatment or some advice that you, you can't procure for yourself. Um, so you're going to this person and trusting him or her that the information that you get is good or is as good as possible, right? Uh, and, and in that case, we seem to, you know, we seem to think that, well, it's reasonable to trust the authority of a doctor or a dentist or a lawyer or a banker or, you know, whatever professional we're sort of entrusting important things about our lives to, in part because we just can't do those things for ourselves. We have to trust someone. And then the trust grows, presumably, the more we know about that person and the, the, the greater is the success of that relationship over time. You know? So mm-hmm. if, you're, if, you, if you go to a doctor that you've never met before at a walk-in clinic and he or she says, uh, you know, I think you need to take this uh, experimental drug and you've never heard of it, you know nothing about it, you're going to be a lot more, or you should be a lot more skeptical than if you're doctor of 20 years who has delivered all your children and seen you through some terrible things recommend something right mm-hmm. so we i think we need to be careful in our thinking about what authority is who has authority and then how we as individuals um respond to that i mean just because someone is an authority on x does that mean that we have to do every single thing that person says about every facet of our lives, mm-hmm. right? And if we do think that some people are authorities, then presumably they're only authorities in some specialized area. So one thing I think is really worrisome now is that we have people like Dr. Tam telling us, right, that we need we need lockdowns, we need vaccines in order to prevent severe illness in order to reduce transmission or something like that, which doesn't even seem to be true. But, you know, they're focusing on epidemiological aspects of these treatments. But 
They aren't, as far as I know, experts in the psychological tools of lockdowns, for example. Mm -hmm. So they're enforcing policies on the basis of expertise in some one area, policies that undoubtedly will have great effects, grave effects in other areas without having expertise in those areas, right? So there's kind of, um, I think we need to be very careful when we take advice from experts to be sure what advice we're taking why and then draw a boundary when they cease to be operating within the confines of that expertise mm -hmm. it, yeah oftentimes uh well we're always reluctant we're always re reliant on uh subject matter experts uh, smes mm -hmm. and <laughs> right and and what ends up happening is like we don't end up learning to think for for ourselves yeah and so the idea is if you're a subject matter expert or you're, you know you're a teacher you know i'm a teacher and there's a there's a i have more knowledge than than my um than my students but there's a point of common communication um, mm. where i can communicate to my students and my students can communicate back to me where they can grasp a certain level of knowledge that i'm providing mm -hmm. um that we can there's a common ground we can get to and that a com that common ground um is epistemology. Mm -hmm. How do you know that you know the science mm -hmm. of knowing? <laughs> and, well, there's the question. <laughs> the, the science of knowing. How do you know that you know? And it comes back to objective morality. And objective morality comes back to one concept of truth. And everything, like like when it comes to like presuppositional thinking, the core of why you believe what you believe comes back to does truth exist? Yes or no, right? And truth is the moral virtue, but you have to believe that it exists. So for example- yeah. And even once you, I mean, you can grant that truth exists and that there, there's an objectively right answer to a question without mm. having any idea how to, how to get to that answer. Yeah, yes, yes. And see, but see, Different. this is why, this is why we got to <laughs> teach, we got to give them the tools, not tell them what to think, but how to think. So the laws of logic, right? Right. A really, a, I can give you a really simple example that I often okay, good, use, good, good, use good. in class, right? So something like, um, you know, uh, to take a classroom, got the doors closed, all the students are sitting in a lecture hall and they're looking at me. And I'll ask them, how many of you believe there's a person outside in the hall and they can't see outside in the hall, right? So how many of you believe mm -hmm. there's a person outside in the hall? Uh, and they'll either say, well, I, I don't know, or maybe just to play along, they'll guess or something, right? But they all understand that without having the sensory experience or, or being told by a reliable source, we can't know there's a person out in the hall. We would have to go and look. We would have to ask someone, you know, something like that. But every single person in the room understands that there is a truth of the matter. There either is a person in the hall or there isn't, right? Mm -hmm. So there's that difference between understanding that there is truth uh, and understanding that sometimes we can't know what that truth is because more work needs to be done or it's in principle impossible to know it given uh, what our knowledge it looks like now. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, A really and that's, simple, simple example. Yeah, and, and so all I was just saying was just like the pursuit of truth is morally virtuous, right? So, it, mm -hmm. so it's morally virtuous because it requires uh, courage. Right, mm -hmm. humility, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. hard work, patience, which most people don't have. <laughs> right, <laughs> like nobody, and and, and I'm, I'm sure Joel <laughs> would agree. Most people, when you get into these conversations, and especially if you're equipped and you, you know, when you know your stuff, and you get into a conversation with someone who doesn't know, we we all we all been there. Whether we're talking about cars <laughs> or whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. and the person who is at the disadvantage because they don't know as much. What do they do? Well, they don't stick around. They're not going to be courageous enough to stick around in that conversation, right? Or patient enough to hear the end, right? They get very defensive, and then and then they want to uh, leave, exit exit the conversation in, in a slick way with red herrings or or straw men <laughs> or whatever the case may be. But the people who are prepared, and we know we, we we've been there. So the point I'm making is just to make sure that that we you know as educators and and then even just just conversation at the coffee table with, 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 with friends, also just helping people to think through how do you know that you know, and giving them the tools. So for example, um, 
the law of excluded middle, right? Mm -hmm. um, usually there is no gray area. Usually you can, you can find um, a yes or a no. Uh, the law of identity, everything has an identity. Uh, law of non-contradiction, two contradictory statements can't be true. Like, like these simple um, epistemology principles will help you know, to know that you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you you bring those up because those are you know logical principles that sort of help to enforce binary thinking, right? And that's mm -hmm. really important in some contexts because sometimes there's just a very clear black and white truth of the matter, and and sometimes mm -hmm. even ideally it, it's kind of easy to get to that point. But I also think, kind of ironically, uh, conversely we are not comfortable with the opposite these days, right? We're not very, I have a very good friend who often likes to say things like, we like black and white thinking, we're very uncomfortable with the gray in between. Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think that's true. Uh, and I think grayness is wonderful, not because there isn't not because there isn't objective truth somewhere floating in the murkiness of the gray, mm -hmm. but because we're not always going to know what the answer is. But mm -hmm. if we shy away from the discomfort of wading into that gray territory, uh, we're going to close off the possibility of understanding an awful lot about the world. So I, I guess I've been thinking about this a lot lately, which I think you guys have too, but which is that I think we need to be more comfortable with chaos, more comfortable with unanswered questions, uh, not be afraid to ask a question just because we don't already have the answer in mind, right? I mean, now I think we, mm -hmm. we, <laughs> we, we enter into conversations uh, or we listen to people, not so we can understand them, but just so that we can wait to reply and give them what our view is, which is clearly, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, the result of well, not even careful thinking. It's, the, it's, it's coming from somewhere, but it's a very strong considered view. But that doesn't allow for very good dialogue and discussion and exploration, right? We need to, I think, sometimes be willing to pose questions that we don't know the answer to, because maybe the other person has a better chance of answering it than we do, and we might actually learn something. Or we don't even need to have that lofty ideal. I think there can be that. I mean, I've had a lot of very valuable conversations in which uh, I just, and, and the other person, we just pose questions that we find interesting, that we think are worth talking about, that we might learn something from. But we're very clear that we're not going to get to an answer in the next two hours before our coffee's done. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I think the point you make about uh, thinking for yourself is tremendously hard work, you know, mm -hmm, yeah. and uh, it requires a lot of focus, something we don't have any of these days, because when in our lives are we, you know, when do we have a room of our own away from the matting crowd where our, our phone isn't beeping or the TV isn't on or the laptop isn't open doing all kinds of things to our... <laughs> our senses, right? It, it requires, yeah, thinking for yourself requires space and uh, a lot of time. work, time and time. research <laughs> and memory. Yeah, time, memory. Yep. Uh, and so I think we just outsource now. Mm -hmm. you know, we think that'll be a lot easier. We, we, and Google, we Google stuff. That's a kind of outsourcing, right? So we think, well, Google will tell me. It'll tell me what the weather is going to be. It'll tell me what's on TV tonight. It'll tell me whether I should get a vaccine or not. It'll tell me. I don't have to worry about it, right? Uh, and we outsource to the so-called experts, which, which we've talked about a lot. Um, we outsource to, <laughs> it's funny, you know, I was, I was in London yesterday and I was speaking with someone and she said, London is often used as the test it's or did she say it's never used as the test place for marketers or something because nobody in London follows ads it's all word of mouth and I thought that was so interesting right but but mm. in the explanation that went on she said yeah people who live in London and this is probably true of other places as well but all they care about in making their decisions is what people they know have told them what their mm. friends will approve of and so Right, we do this now, I think. We we outsource all of the decisions in our lives, whether it's to our cell phone or to our laptop or to the government or to our friends, anybody or anything, so we can avoid having to do the hard work ourselves. And one of the great things about that is that if you get an answer, 
from one of those sources and you act on that answer and it doesn't turn out so great, it's not your fault, right? Tam mm-hmm. told me to do it. Google told me to do it. My friends told me to do it. <laughs> so there's less responsibility, right? Agree or disagree with our views? Give us your two cents. You can leave your comments on any of our social media platforms or email us at sixcentsreport at gmail.com. Six cents makes cheap sense, makes cheap sense, makes cheap sense. I've been curious, sort of in, in light of our conversation, um, how much does you know what you're saying relate to the way we do modern education so you know the the there's a quote there's a number of quotes from John Taylor Gatto who you know career educator who then you know looks back on modern education and and writes a number of books being very critical um mm-hmm. the the one quote that comes to my mind from weapons of mass instruction <laughs> um was here's what Title. he had said <laughs> yeah what shocks us is that we should so eagerly have adopted one of the worst aspects of Prussian ed- culture, an education system that deliberately designed to produce mediocre intellects, to hamstring the inner life, to deny students appreciable leader skill- leadership skills, and to ensure docile and incomplete citizens, all in order to render the populace manageable. So I, the quote's a little bit, um, you know, boisterous, but I would say, I no, think the I way- No, I don't think it could have been said any better. That's about <laughs> or, what I uh, see when I get them when okay. they're 18 at university. Yes. So. <laughs> okay. So I think the, let's say, less um, language version of that is, I've heard it said, you know, we, we've, we have um, an education system that is designed to create good factory employees or good soldiers. And, you know, much of our conversation is, well, what have we just talked about? Oh, defer to this person, defer to this authority, defer, mm-hmm. defer, and not thinking Followers. through autonomous, you know, individuals who are trying to make the best decisions for themselves by evaluating or go back to what I, the employment center, we're not educating people to be entrepreneurs, we're educating them to yeah. be employees. And so since it sounds like you somewhat agree, I wonder if you can, you know, speak to how much do you see that contributing to the culture? And then even, you know, what do we do to change Oh, that? totally, totally. Yeah, I, I mean, I, um, <laughs> all I see in students at university, place or in the past, you know, I'm not teaching there anymore, but uh, all I see in them is apathy, deference, compliance, and a great concern for social acceptance. And these are virtues Mm. that someone doesn't wake up one day thinking they want to incorporate into their life, right? I mean, these Mm. are things that you have to be trained from a very, very young age to believe are good. It's interesting. uh, I don't Mm. know if you saw the video of the Western engineering student on November 11th Mm -hmm. who was a ref. Yeah, you saw that. Um, He keeps doing it too. Well, good for him. I I think that's great. and and it's so it's always interesting when there are these outliers, these anomalous, uh, you know, people who, and you wonder, well, where did they come from? What was their upbringing like? What did he read when he was eight years old? Things like that. But anyway, um, what was interesting about that is on on one of the Twitter feeds where that video was posted, I remember seeing a comment from a Western student who said, "If he doesn't know how to follow rules, he doesn't belong at university." Mm-hmm. And it's funny because. My thinking, in some sense, is that we want the people at university who are good at questioning rules, and we want then then to further teach them how to do that. I mean, I'm not su- suggesting that we should be training people to be complete anarchists or, or you know, uh, but a healthy questioning of authority and creative thinking. Creativity requires thinking differently from people around you. You can't be creative and be completely compliant. It's it's by definitionally impossible, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, how did this happen, though? It's so interesting. You know, I was reading um, some Walt Whitman actually over the last week for for a certain project, and I mean, Walt Whitman is sort of you know he's he's an American. He's talking about uh, what was going wrong, uh, you know, in America in 
in sort of the 19th century and, and, and how to uh, support a flourishing democracy. But he had a lot to say about uh, how poetry and literature can help build hope and shape the natural character in ways that wouldn't seem obvious to, to those sort of caught up in the business of living life and making you know, getting good grades in school and, and getting a job and things like that. And and his view then is that, was that, um, uh, you know, many of us have, and this was over a hundred years ago, right? But that many of us have lost literature and our arts more generally as as a key facet of life. So it, it wasn't really at all surprising to him that they were facing a kind of democratic deterioration as well. And um, he wrote, I think he wrote that this might be a direct quotation. It's very close anyway. He wrote something like literature has become the only general means of morally influencing the world. And I remember him talking about how, you know, long after uh, the governments and, and laws and social structures of some of our most successful, arguably cultures like ancient Greece and Rome, long after those civilizations had vanished or crumbled, what remains? Well, their literature, their art, their mm. philosophy, their ideals. And this ties back, I think, to what we were talking earlier about the experts. And one of the problems with thinking that, what's the acronym you used for uh, SMEs, SMEs, uh, subject matter experts. Subject matter expert, right. So um, the problem with SME, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure we should have SMEs, but maybe, I don't Neither know. Neither do but, I, I don't think we should. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we've lost, I think, in putting too much value on subject matter experts, we've lost the idea of a polymath, right? Someone who uh, is quite well educated. And I don't mean that in a formal sense, but someone who's really well read and has a good understanding of, of, of literature and art and maybe economics and psychology and history and, and, and understands how these things fit with the other ones, right? So that you understand when you make medical policy, what will the economic outcomes be? How will this affect people psychologically a year from now, 20 years from now? Um, how will those decisions uh, affect you know, uh, our democracy? Uh, how can we figure that out ahead of time? Well, why don't we look to history? At other, let's look to our most successful democratic societies in the past. When did they get things right and why? Uh, when did they falter and why? How did they get back on track? It takes a kind of polymathic mindset to not only answer, but to ask those kinds of questions, right? So I think Whitman, like we need a Walt Whitman now to tell us that, you know, the, the literature, the aesthetics, the, 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 the history, the mores, the songs of a country are, are deeply important because they give us the materials and the ideals for the men and women of that country to aspire to and enforce them and trench them in our individual characters and our collective national characters in, and I think he puts it this way, in a thousand effective ways, right? Isn't mm -hmm. that interesting? Don't you think that, yeah. I mean, we don't, let me put it in one sentence shortly. We don't read enough anymore. <laughs> That's what he meant. <laughs> mm -hmm. We don't, we don't, we don't read comprehensively anymore. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. Uh, I wanted to, um, I think I have somewhat of a good summary of, of what you've said with regards to polymaths, because um, mm -hmm. this is how I've been sort of thinking about it. Um, but then I do want to transition um, to, you know, something we've, we've touched on vaguely a couple of times, which is sort of the, the start of David comparisons. But um, the polymath sort of summary, the way that I've seen it is, you know, very much the, the polymath would be sort of the person who can see a number of forests and aggregating them together. Yeah. Whereas the subject matter experts are sort of so the deep tree. in the individual forest at the tree level mm -hmm. um, that they have insightful information, um, mm -hmm. but they really lack the ability sometimes to even ask the the really uh, large questions or large scale questions. And and you know if we want to use someone who's a little bit more on our side, we could use you know Byron Brindle as a good example. Mm -hmm. He's he's going to have some very uh, tree level knowledge questions and and insights. Um, but then, you know, he might even be able to maybe ask some of the questions a little bit better at his forest level. Um, but I think the polymath example or polymath terminology does give a really good perspective of the need to aggregate all of these different forests together and think about how they intertwine. Yeah, I think we sometimes take for granted 
uh, how hard it is to ask the right questions. Mm. And I think people of uh, people who are scientists like Byra, you know, in, in his job, I mean, one of the main things he does, one of his main research focuses is inventing vaccines to treat various cancers. Mm. You know, so it's a highly creative, original line of work. And he has to figure out, you know, what, what's ultimately important there, what gets the research going is not, okay, how do I answer these questions about how to create the right kind of vaccine? It, it's, it, it, what are the fundamental questions to begin with? What do we need to be asking? Uh, and that's where the creativity lies. And that's where, you know, we need um, non-specialized knowledge to inform our thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's a, a really good summary uh, of it. Um, with, with respect to, you know, as I said, I, I did want to transition to, to the Star mm-hmm. of David piece because i think you know one of the like we we've sort of touched on it briefly a couple times um making the comparison but you know there's there's a level of i've heard sort of the idea of oh we shouldn't even be making this comparison or or there's a pushback against let's call it the morality of making that comparison um you know um i think i if i wanted to let's say steel man those positions or those critiques it would be that there's a concern that we're diminishing the atrocity atrocities that happened yeah i think that's got to be one of the motivations mm-hmm. and and so i'm wondering you know can you speak to you know where you think maybe the comparison is appropriate or or what mm-hmm. is the real comparison that's being had um that or if it's not a- appropriate or if it's not a- yes fair yeah well it's 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 a really interesting question and i'm glad we're we're talking about it here because there are a lot of places where you couldn't have this particular conversation right now. So I'm, I'm glad we're talking about it, but I think you're, yeah, I've been thinking about this. Why does this comparison get people's backs up so much? And I think you're probably right that part of it is uh, the Holocaust was a horrendous atrocity. Of course it was. Um, But in order to get to the point where we think it's an inappropriate comparison, we have to believe that we aren't seeing atrocities now. And I don't think that's clearly the case. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, we want to be on the lookout for atrocities before they happen, ideally, and and not just be able to appeal to the past once they've happened to figure out where we ought to have stepped differently. Ideally, we want to learn from the past so that we can do better. Right. Mm -hmm. I I think probably also another thing people will point to, to to make it clear that these cases are different is with respect to choice. So they'll say, well, uh, your race or your ethnicity uh, are not matters of choice, even if maybe your religion is, right? But whether or not you're you're a Jew uh, is not a matter of choice, right? Mm -hmm. Um, An ethnic Jew, right? Uh, Whereas whether you get vaccinated or not, this point is a choice. And so they might say, well, it's worse to, to be victimized for something you can't choose for or against than it is to be victimized for something that you can choose for or against, right? Maybe something like that. And then I think maybe a third point um, would be something like, well, whether you're vaccinated or not is not deeply a part of who you are, whereas your ethnicity or race is. That, so there might be those kind of just thinking charitably, right? About right, of course. On the other side, but you know, and you're probably familiar, I would think, with there are all these uh, sort of lists or accounts of the different stages of genocide, right? So mm-hmm. if you look, for example, I was just looking at this the other day on the Montreal Holocaust Museum. There's a whole page devoted to the 10 stages of genocide. And it starts with, you know, classification and symbolization and moves to discrimination and dehumanization, and then ultimately ends up at, at extermination. And the final stage is always denied. The earliest stages are arguably what we are seeing now. So if you take something like classification, that's any attempt to group people according to categories they fall into. Right. So put people over here who have some relevant thing in common and classify them and distinguish them from the people over here who are different from that first group, but have some other thing in common. So we have vaccinated people over here and then we have the unvaccinated folks over here. 
right? So classifying to begin with. Um, and that's really not, I mean, these stages that lead up to some of the worst atrocities in history are not clearly classifying people only on the basis of things that you can't choose or not choose. I mean, we've seen people, uh, you know, groups of people classified and abused for their choice of religion and not just for their ethnicities in the past. Yeah, right, right. right. And the church knows that, yeah. Yeah. And so um, then when we move to something like symbolizing those classified groups differently, and when you look at, at the Holocaust, or, or even now, for example, we see the treatment of you know, Romanians in, in Europe. You know? um, but if we go back to the sort of the Holocaust example, um, people were symbolized as either Jews or not Jews, and the Jews had to wear visible signs of their ethnicity, right? So they had to wear a yellow star and then ultimately a tattooed number. And then, you know, I think in the the last several months of the um, uh, the regime in Cambodia, uh, the, the people from the Eastern Zone in Cambodia had to wear a blue and white checked scarf. Mm. So anything that says this group of people is different from another group, and we're going to put a symbol on them um, and, and, and identify those people in that way. And there are ways, you know, I mean, um, we've developed ways to try to identify when this is happening and to prevent it. So um, our bans on symbols and hate speech and clothing that's meant to discriminate against groups is meant to prevent this kind of symbolization. And so it's so worrisome to me when we see bills like 10 and C10 and 36 that, and I'm not advocating for hate speech, but I think when we see censorship bills, you need to be on the lookout in society for the prevention of the kind of hate speech that prevents the symbolization that ultimately leads us to the persecution of people. So I think it's not a coincidence now that we are seeing a heavy attack on various forms of speech and that we are also seeing symbolization mm -hmm. with vaccination passports and cards and other ways of QR symbols and other things like that. And then the next stage is always a kind of discrimination. So you take these people who are in different groups and the one has the right valued symbol, the, the QR code or the vaccine passport, and the other one doesn't. And then you say to the, the group that has the right accepted symbol, well, we're going to give you benefits that the other group doesn't get. Mm -hmm. right? And we're going to use our laws and our customs and our political power to give you certain rights to protect your rights. And we're going to deny those rights to the people um, in, the, in the other groups. And then it's the worry is that it's a slow slide from there to some of the worst things we've seen in history. So I guess my, my point about all of this is that it doesn't ultimately matter what gets you into the initially classified groups in the first place, whether it's a matter of choice or not. Um, once that happens, um, you can pretty easily, and I dare say quickly, become a victim of the kind of persecution that I think countries in the West have spent an awfully long time and gone through an awful lot of effort to try to avoid. Yeah, that's, it's, I think the way that I've described it um, for me is that I thought, you know, my pushback to the people saying dismiss this comparison is that I thought it was far more dangerous to dismiss the comparison as inappropriate than to identify mm. the similarities that led to the situation. And in talk about place. it at least and entertain it and you know, just to make sure that we've got it out in the open. Because I think when ideas are out in the open like that, they're so much less likely to be uh, harmful and to spread in, in problematic ways, right? Than if we keep them all bottled up and just don't talk about them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, actually, I, I, agree, I agree with Joel. Um, yeah, like I think it's important not to dismiss um, as much as you might not agree with people posting the Star of David. Um, as a sign of being unvaccinated and, and, and being discriminated against. I think, um, well, we shouldn't dismiss, I'm all, we, should, well, we, we on the show believe you, you shouldn't dismiss any idea. You shouldn't dismiss any idea because it, it's worth talking about. Because you know what? The people who are posting um, the um, Star of David 
in a conversation, they might find out that they're wrong in mm-hmm. a conversation or mm-hmm. the opposite might be true. You might actually find out that they might be right, but at least have the conversation. And that, that's actually funny with, with the um, Holocaust. That's how I really got into history and started mm-hmm. studying history and, and became a historian because the question for me, like when I first learned about the Holocaust, um, the first thing I thought, much as I wasn't engaged in school <laughs> and I wasn't doing well, it was it it captured my mind where I, I had to ask the question, how did like how did it how did this happen? Like what kind of political climate causes this to happen? And uh, and even being gracious, at some point, those people were just like us, you know, going mm-hmm. about their day, you know, and then you know the Jews are being blamed for uh, society not progressing, mm-hmm. right? Oh, you know. It's the Jews that are causing the problems, right? It's the Jews that are causing the problems. Like, okay, let's segregate them. Okay, let's get rid of them. Um, and then when you see the force of Hitler, um, and the, or I should say the wrath of Hitler, that's when people got scared and nobody did anything. Mm. Um, and I'm, again, being gracious, I'm sure, I'm sure there were Germans who didn't agree. I'm sure of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were probably just really scared about like, okay, what, you, you want to stand up for some Jews? You're going to end up in a concentration camp just like them. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, oh, you, oh, you don't want to stand up for X? Then you're going to end up just like them. So there are, there are points of continuity and discontinuity. But I, I, but I definitely think the conversation should be happening. And I, yeah, and I think, you know, one of the uh, psychological explanations for why we see compliance with things that we probably wouldn't comply with in a different context. Uh, so when you mentioned there were probably a lot of Germans, and we have some some testimonial accounts from from such people, right? That 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 didn't agree with what was going on, and who had questions at the time. But um, similarity between that moment in history and what we're seeing now is the prolongation of psychological stress and bombardment. Mm. And uh, you know, when when Germans were being told that the Jews were the root of all their problems. And they did feel those problems, economic, social. Um, It's human nature to want to blame others rather than ourselves. And it might even be human nature always to have a problem to solve. Mm. Um, And when you've been told for years by that point, by the dominant political entity that's all around you, this is the group to blame. These are the people that are causing the problems. If only we could get rid of them, we would have a better, richer, more mm-hmm. pure, more functioning society. And you're just told that over and over and over again, and no one is proposing another story, a counter narrative. You know, there's a kind of psychological toll, a kind of moral exhaustion that that sets in, I think. And is it's not impossible to conquer, but you just need more and more resources all the time to conquer it the longer it goes on. And those are the very things that are being beaten down. And I think we're seeing exactly that sort of thing right now. You know, we know that the nudge unit in the Privy Council is working hard all all the time to track our behavior and figure out how to produce messaging that is most likely to nudge or coerce our behavior. Well, how in the world do we have a chance against that when messaging comes at us in all forms every day? You know, I just drove through Toronto the other day and there were messages about vaccination on the electronic signs above the highway, for goodness sake. You know, you can't even, you're Mm -hmm. in your car and you don't have your phone or your, your your laptop on but my goodness now you're getting it when you're driving and there's nowhere to go to escape it and it takes a lot of free thinking and a lot of confidence in your own thinking ability to to resist and look through that i think what's what i found interesting sort of that predates this was you know jordan peterson had always talked about one of the reasons he studied these time periods was the idea of, and I think he talked about with Joe Rogan about this a, a few years back. You know, common man was part of the atro- these atrocities, atrocities, mm-hmm. right? Like, what what would I have to go through? Was sort of the way I think he posed the question that I would be complicit or that I would be part of, you know, the the let's say the Germans, 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what I what I was sort of wondering, I was wondering if you could you know comment on that. And and I think yeah, you know absolutely. Um, the the I do want to also transition maybe a little bit also to why we don't seem to have the same criticism toward the use of the word Nazi as we do with push. Like, so it's two sides of the same issue, but, you know, comparing to the Jews, people have a huge problem with, but comparing to the Nazi, it's like, oh, well, that's not diminishing the atrocities. Right. And, and yeah, I know it's a bit of a, a sidebar, so maybe we end up having to save that topic for a future time. But, <laughs> but I think there, there's, to me, there's that those are both two more nuances to this conversation, right? The common man mm-hmm. and their role in in those atrocities, but also maybe we we don't have a problem with the comparison to the oppressor, but we do have a problem with the comparison to the oppressed. Hmm. Okay, both both really interesting. My guess is we'll have time just to talk about the <laughs> first one, but on that topic of yeah, so Jordan Peterson's question: What would it have taken for me to me as a common person, or I think of myself as a common person, to uh, perform these atrocities or to be complicit in, in involved in them? And um, the best answer I think we've got to that historically is is Hannah Arendt's answer. You know, when she it was I guess it's almost sixty years ago now, when she uh, was sent to cover the trial of Ike. Uh, in Jerusalem. So Eichmann was one of the main organizers of the Holocaust, right? And arguably sent 5 million Jews and and, and others uh, to their death and organized the transportation of them, right? So uh, involved in accomplishing uh, what is arguably the greatest atrocity in human history. So you would expect, and she writes um, in, in Eichmann in, Jer- in Jerusalem, she writes that she was expecting to find uh, a, you know, an evil, diabolical, probably very intelligent, creative, maybe arrogant sort of person. That's, of course, that's what you would expect. And maybe, maybe someone who's also physically large in stature. I, I'm not sure. Anyway, what she found was completely the opposite from that. Uh, physically, he's diminutive in stature. He's very meek looking, uh, very fine features. I think he was wearing glasses. He looks down the whole time. Uh, no arrogant, grand arm move, you know, nothing like that. He's just a very diminutive uh, sort of person that you would never notice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he just kept saying over and over again that he was just following rules. And, 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 and Arendt, um, called this the banality of evil, you know? So she says, well, these people, Mm. these sort of unassuming, um, technocrats who, who just invoke this line, I'm just following orders. It's not like it's benign. It's, it's banal, but not benign, right? Um, you might not think you're doing any harm by following someone else's orders, but you can accomplish a great deal of harm by being a cog in a greater machine that is responsible for those harms, right? And she said something like, um, you know, that he, he was pretty clearly interested in, in his personal advancement. She said he had a, a lot of Sort of an extraordinary diligence in trying to advance himself. The climb the uh, corporate ladder he, type of thing. Yeah, that sort of thing, right? Probably okay, like all like the rest season. of us. Yeah, exactly. Um, and she said he was pretty clearly thoughtless. I mean, he just really didn't identify with the, the people that he was instrumental um, in harming. But he was mm. also just pretty pedestrian and pretty regular. And um, she wrote that he was terribly and terrifyingly normal. Anyway, I mean, terribly and terrifyingly normal, isn't that? I mean, it's beautifully written, but also haunting at the same time. And it's haunting, I think, because when we read that, we probably all know that it's possible within each of us. We would like to think it's not, mm-hmm. um, but it's mm-hmm. possible within each of us. I um, I gave a speech uh, for a faith and democracy event last Wednesday. And I was talking about compliance and I showed the audience this picture of August. Oh, I always forget his last name. Less better. Anyway, the picture from 1936, a black and white photo. He's standing, crossing his arms, the only one in a sea of Nazis who are all saluting the Nazi party. 
night. And I would ask my, I would often show that picture to my students in class and I would ask them, which of these people do you think they would be? And, you know, the benefit of history and being put on the spot, and they know they're in an ethics class and all of this, they're thinking, well, I would, I would be the guy with the arms crossed, clearly. <laughs> um, but none of our psychological evidence suggests that, you know, it all yep. suggests that we will go with the flow, mob mentality, um, that, that very, very few of us will, will uh, step out of line or question authority. I think it's something like 90 some percent of nurses will not question authority if they see that something is going wrong uh, wow. in the medical context, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so all of that together suggests that all of us, almost all of us, in the range of 90 some percent probably, are capable of what I could in the right circumstances. Yep. Yep. And I think we're proving now that I think we're I think we're proving those psychological experiments and the historical ones to be exactly true. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think ninety some percent of us are on board with doing anything the authority says, and for the sake of earning our place in the tribe and getting along and and gaining reputation by from other people. Yep, yep. Sin makes cowards of us, man. <laughs> yeah, but the cowardly, no, it it you know, we always disparage cowardice, but the cowardly route is a comfortable one because there are mm -hmm. always other people there too. Yep, that's where right? the sin is. <laughs> <laughs> so at least you're in, I'll put good in scare quotes, but at least you're in good company because you're in lots of company, right? Yeah, yeah, no. Oh my gosh. <laughs> anyway, wow. and we'll have to save the. We'll have to save the one about um, the Nazis and the um, double standard, right? Yeah. We'll save that one for next time. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that was very insightful. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Well, that's, that's a rent's insight, not mine. The, the <laughs> okay. word comfort um, is, is, I think, a very uh, relevant one because, mm. you know, for many people, to stand up today would be sacrifice the comfort of the decision they've already made that that was you know probably made out of a desire to be you know returned to comfort yeah um, they have to sort of step out of that comfort in order to stand against uh, and, well, and, as we, and and if you figure out that you you were wrong about that then what else might you be wrong about and that's mm -hmm. a pretty terrifying as someone said to me yesterday we were talking about you know why are so many people um unable to or un, uninterested in questioning the narrative and this person's answer which i think is really insightful was well what's the alternative because if we start to think that maybe all of these draconian political measures are not about preventing a virus and keeping us safe then what are they really about and that is a set of questions that's just too much we we can't we can't cope with the possible reality there, and so that I think speaks to your 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 point about comfort. Um, comfort is not just a luxury, right? I think we, you know, many of us frame our lives and every decision in our life in order to live a comfortable existence. I mean, everything from making sure the uh, the medicine cabinet in the bathroom is well stocked with Tylenol to making sure that we have the right social groups and we wear exactly the right kind of boots to fit in with that social group uh, to getting uh, to making medical decisions so that comfort is is a is a guiding force in our, our little uh, imperfect human lives to bring it back to what we were talking about at the beginning mm -hmm. so um, to to wrap up um, you know what uh, I, I would say you know is there something that um, the, you know, for the listener to, is there anything that you have coming uh, that they can watch out for? Um, obviously, we'll make sure to put your contact information in the show notes page like, like the last time, um, or I, if there's anything new. Yeah, the big new thing is that I'm writing a book. Um, and, and actually, a lot of the things that we've talked about today are, are going to be in the book, are in the book. Um, you know, it's, it's a book that's largely about my story and also about pandemic ethics and, and where I think we've kind of taken a misstep with respect to our approach 
to the pandemic, but it ends on a hopeful note. So it gives uh, readers some insight into sort of the bigger picture, but then also some of the immediate things that can be done right away. Right. So that's kind mm-hmm. of the big thing on the horizon. And it, it will be from, you know, start to finish in terms of writing uh, about a month turnaround time. Wow. And we're hoping to have it published um, probably two weeks from now at the outside. So, wow. Wow. Well, it's a Before timely end, topic. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. In time for Christmas. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Not that it's a cheery well, Christmas. Time. Yeah. Well. 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 Maybe. Hopefully, we can maybe plan to have you back to to discuss that and absolutely. Um, you know, try to give. Yeah. Definitely. We'll. We'll. Uh, we'll. we'll uh, get a copy of a book to to maybe try and give away to our, our listeners. Sounds uh, good. So. Um, yeah, we look forward to that, and um, I'm sure our audience will look forward to another episode or another Sounds conversation. Great. Well, thank you as always. Thank you. Thanks again. But you heard me. Does that make sense?